Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Nitya Subramanian, an editor at the Institute. The Quad, a grouping comprising the United States, India, Australia, and Japan, has been growing in prominence in the recent years. The leaders held their first Quad summit earlier this month. This has happened within a few months of Joe Biden becoming president, indicating a continuation of Trump's policy. While vaccine cooperation was a key takeaway, there there were several other decisions. To discuss more, we have with us Dr. Yogesh Joshi, research fellow at ISS. He's been following these developments quite closely. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Joshi. Glad to be here, Nitya. Thank you so much. The first Quad Summit featuring leaders of the United States, India, Australia, and Japan was held on 12th March. Just prior to that, the foreign ministers of these countries met. At his press briefing, the United States National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, called it historic. Do you agree with this? And what, according to you, were the key takeaways from this meeting? Do you also think this has been a reinforcement of the U.S.'s commitment to the Indo-Pacific region? Oh, thanks, Nitya, for that question. Um, I think one has to start with, in my understanding, there are four key takeaways. One is uh, directly linked to uh, uh, Blinken's idea of this Quad Summit as historic. Uh, and it is historic because primarily because the Quad has finally resolved its historic hesitancy. Uh, you know, in coming together at that level. Uh, So if you remember, the whole exercise began as an international humanitarian response to the tsunami in December 2004. Uh, And then on with the Manila summit of the Asian uh, Regional Forum, uh, the four or five navies, because Singapore was also participant at that point in time, came together. Uh, And then it dissipated pretty quickly, almost for a decade. Uh, until 2017, when uh, the foreign ministers of these uh, uh, these four countries came together, so in some sense, the journey of Quad has been pretty, uh, you know, long and full of hesitancies from all sides, uh, particularly Australia, India, uh, and on the other hand, Japan and US have been constant supporters. So in some sense, you know, the Quad summit kind of indicates that now all the four countries uh, in some sense are at the same uh, wavelength when it comes to uh, generally accepting that Quad is here to stay uh, and that it needs to be coordinated at the highest levels. The second important turn which I foresee is uh, the geoeconomic turn because Quad otherwise has always been judged both internally and externally uh, by the intensity um, and level of security cooperation uh, between these four countries. So whether you know all countries would participate in Malabar exercises or not, what level of uh, naval cooperation would be there, whether they have signed the foundational defense agreements, whether there is defense cooperation. So I think there was an exorbitant amount of emphasis which was laid down on uh, the military and the defense dynamics uh, behind Quad, and maybe rightly so, but what it missed was a geoeconomic angle. And primarily because all the four countries of the Quad are enmeshed uh, in a very strong economic interdependence with China. 
China's rise and China's growth actually occurred on the shoulders of uh, liberal economic patterns uh, based upon its economic trade with all these countries in a sense. So, uh, so basically, they, their growth also fueled China's growth, which now act kind of is exhibited in its in its military rise so until unless you have some kind of an economic alternative to china uh, thinking about just military balances of power is futile uh, so i think quads this summit particularly on its geoeconomic emphasis uh, with vaccines with rare earths it kind of shows that quad is now finally looking at to creating an alternative economic model vis-a-vis china uh, the third is American leadership. Uh, now, I have very mixed feelings about the Trump administration. Uh, there are so many things which were wrong with Trump's domestic policies. But I think in standing up to China in the way Trump did, as well as forcing allies to kind of take security concerns in the region seriously, I think those were Trump's biggest, uh, in some sense, contributions. Uh, to a balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. Yes, there were downsides. It was very transactional. Uh, it also created some apprehensions in, uh, in the minds of the allies of, of uh, American credibility, as well as it also kind of created, uh, in some sense, a very difficult situation for countries, uh, small countries uh, and countries in ASEAN, because they were now put into a corner. I think what Biden administration is trying to do is not to take away uh, the offensive, uh, you know, edge of Trump's policies, but just sugarcoat it well uh, with uh, with em emphasizing upon uh, its relationship with allies, emphasizing upon economic interdependence, emphasizing upon global governance. So, in some sense, American leadership is back uh, with the same offensive punch. Uh, which you could see during the Trump's time. But lastly, I think what is most important at a very broad level is to understand that these patterns of balances of power, uh, which you could see actually starting from early 2000, uh, during George W. Bush, when he came to presidency, the first uh, agenda item in George W. Bush's presidency was to take upon China. Uh, but that whole mode of balance of power was overtaken by events like 9-11, Iraq war and all of that. And then you see America catching up. But also that China's rise led to anxieties among regional powers. And you see a kind of, you know, a pattern of uh, groupings forming around, you know, these anxieties, geopolitical anxieties, which is now in some sense much more in a concrete form. Uh, so those geopolitical patterns are manifesting themselves much more prominently today, and we would see this to continue uh, as uh, you know, as as the balance of power or as the power dynamics in the region kind of manifest itself more clearly um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, on one side being hedged to China, on the other side being uh, you know led by the U.S. So, would it be right in assuming or in concluding that? Uh, the Quad will not be an aspirational NATO as China, some people in China view it, but would also be used to develop softer capabilities. Uh, so look, you know, when China talks about NATO, uh, it's definitely to, uh, you know, send aspirations to delegitimize the Quad. And all countries do that. It's not 
very specific to China, so to say. Uh, you know, you're never going to legitimize an adversarial coalition. Um, you know, uh, but I think there are fundamental differences between NATO and uh, Quad. And there are three major differences, which I think, first of all, NATO and Quad doesn't compare in terms of primary threat, which motivated uh, these coalitions, at least not right now. So the level of the Soviet threat uh, in the post-Second World War is not uh, the level of the Chinese threat at this point in time. And we can't say whether it will develop into that kind of a threat or not, uh, but much more depends upon China's actions and uh, you know, how it aims to utilize its power uh, in the years to come. The second idea is American commitment and capacity. Uh, so NATO has full American commitment and the capacity of the US at that point in time. It doesn't compare right now, you know, both in terms of American commitments and its capacity. You don't, can't compare America of 1945 in Europe compared to America of 2020 in the Indo-Pacific. And lastly is about um, allies commitment and capacity. Uh, so you again can't compare European nations with India, Japan, and Australia. They have huge amount of commitment because they're you know, primarily in terms of capacity, not in terms of commitment. They have similar interests at stake, but the capacity of these countries is huge compared to Germany, France, or England at that point in time. Uh, so I think this is substantially, uh, you know, there's a substantial difference. Uh, but two things I would, I would say over here. First is, what are coalitions of the willing or alliances for that matter? I think uh, one thing one, one must understand is that Quad is not an active deterrent. It's a deterrent in the making. So you're basically trying to tell China is look, look, we will come together as we face more and more pressure from you. And it's a way to communicate to China that you should basically amend your actions. Otherwise you will lead to a more cohesive alliance-like grouping. So it is, it is for China to take that signal and alter its behavior accordingly. Uh, you know, and if China does that, I don't see Quad becoming a NATO at some point in time because it all ultimately depends upon in some sense or the other Chinese actions. So it's a deterrent, deterrent in being rather, de deterrent, uh, rather than an actual deterrent, so to say. Uh, and second is the issue of, you know, alliances depend upon either credibility of commitment or uncertainty of commitment. Uh, so you can say that whether NATO is, uh, you know, would be effective if there is a credible commitment from the US or would it be ineffective? I think the point which the Quad basically tells China is that, look, we don't, you don't know how we will react. And that uncertainty would create deterrence against China. Uh, so I think in that sense, there is a fundamental difference between NATO and uh, and the US and 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 the NATO and uh, the Quad, uh, but it doesn't mean that these you know uh, the commitments won't become binding or states won't agree to binding commitments in future. Again, this is all depends upon the interaction of Chinese power with anxieties of these rising powers. You know, so uh, so we can never predict the future, so to say. But I think let's think about India's approach to what it gains from Quad, which is the most interesting part. And I'm just focusing on India because the other three uh, blokes in the group are treaty allies in some sense about it. And I think that India's logic is of internal balancing. So Quad helps India to get arms, technology, and wealth to create those resources to balance China internally. Uh, the second thing is that it 
allows it to cooperate with these countries uh, in isolating China's diplomatically and geopolitically. So whether it is connectivity projects, whether it is vaccines, whether it is supply chains, whether it is technological issues like rare earth or 5G or capacity building among ASEAN countries or other small island states. It just allows India more resources, uh, you know, more uh, space to actually take upon China, which it would not have otherwise done by its own. So I think that's that's the fundamental, you know, uh, nature or the, the fundamental aspect of the core, which India, which, which is of advantage to India. As far as the neighbors are concerned, I think, look, at the end of the day, geographical proximity induces fear, uh, you know, and that is the same for India was, neighbors feared India as much as they did during India's independence as they do today. And that is very typical uh, of all small states confronting a large power because of fundamental uncertainty uh, in, 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 in thinking about uh, the larger power's behavior in the future. The same is the case with China. The same is the case with America. So I think, uh, you know, that's that's a very natural. But what one of the things which, which is very interesting is that these small states uh, are not typically at the mercy of these large powers. They can also play their own games, uh, you know, and extract maximum benefits out of a situation of strategic flux, which they are doing today. Uh, you know, when you think, when you see, uh, you know, how states like Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, not Bhutan so much, but Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan for that matter, to a large extent, kind of play India and China to extract benefits for them, which is very, very natural, and they should do so. The problem would be, uh, when India and China, or uh, you know, China and these larger powers would enter into a very serious confrontation or a relationship which is prone to crisis, uh, and then is where you know states, small states, would have to choose, and that's their problem. They don't really want to confront that. But at some point in time, if uh, the geopolitics you know, carry on on the same trajectory, uh, that would be, uh, you know, uh, a place where they would not like to be. Um, moving on to one of the major announcements that happened after the meeting, it was the Vaccine Alliance. And India is expected to play a prominent role here with its manufacturing capabilities. How do you think this would position the Quad and India's place within this grouping? So yeah, uh, so vaccines have become, in some sense, uh, uh, you know, the new uh, new geopolitical flag, in some sense or the other. Uh, you know, particularly in the COVID nineteen world, uh, it not only uh, has become essential for diplomatic influence, but also about status of who is actually uh, providing more relief to the world and who has the capacity to do so. Uh, and I think this is where fundamentally Quad's vaccine push comes into being. Now, India is by far the biggest manufacturer of vaccines. So if you actually look, there are four major vaccines which India is uh, has either developed or is developing. One is AstraZeneca, Serum Institute, COVID Shield, the Bharat Biotech, which is producing uh, indigenous one, which is producing Covaxin. Uh, now, uh, Russian Sputnik vaccine would be produced by Glenn Pharma in India. And Johnson & Johnson, the single shot vaccine would uh, be built, uh, would be manufactured in cooperation with an Indian pharma company called Biological E. Now, one needs to understand the numbers, first of all. So if you look at 
India's production and application of vaccines, it has produced something like one over 130 million doses of vaccines. And uh, out of which around over 70 million have been supplied for domestic use, but around 60 million, which is around 50% of uh, the vaccines produced so far have been exported um, either, uh, you know, for free distribution among neighbors or supplied on a bilateral basis to specific countries like Brazil, UAE and others, but also a huge chunk has gone under the UN-led COEX program. Uh, so India has already been at the forefront. What Quad does is that it bolsters India's capacity to take upon uh, China's influence operations through, uh, you know, using vaccines as a mode uh, to kind of, uh, first of all, uh, you know, uh, uh, rebuild its image, uh, which in some sense was, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally uh, kind of, uh, you know, there was some loss in reputation coming from uh, the how China managed the, the pandemic in initial uh, times, um, but also uh, to kind of reinforce China's influence operations in all over the world. Uh, what Quad does is so so how the distribution of uh, of work. Uh, I think this is the way uh, they have distributed uh, the work among themselves. One is that Japan, US, and Australia will provide the money. Uh, US will provide the technology, which is the J and J vaccinations, Johnson and Johnson vaccinations being produced in India. Australia will provide with transport facilities, and India will uh, pr basically produce, manufacture, and produce this. So there are three. Uh, there are three conclusions which come out of this. Is one is that this is a new model of cooperation based on their comparative advantage. Uh, and it also, again, um, as I initially said, this is the geoeconomic turn. So you basically want to tell to the world that it is not as if China is the only factory in the world. Uh, you know, quad countries can actually replace China if they want to. Uh, the second is that it helps to keep in check China's influence operations, uh, you know, all over the world, so to say. And lastly, it provides some kind of a signal to small states and particularly the ASEAN countries that, look, uh, we are not here just to put you in a corner, uh, but to kind of provide you alternatives uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, your situation vis-a-vis -vis your economic interdependence on China and your security dependence upon us. Uh, so I think those are the three major signals which this whole vaccine diplomacy kind of sends. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful elaboration of uh, the vaccine diplomacy. But moving away from vaccines, the Quad leaders also agreed to form working groups on issues of critical technologies and climate change. How significant would these groups be? So, yeah. So, again, you know, so this is fundamentally what has happened. If you actually look, this has to be looked in a long duty kind of a format. Uh, so all, you know, most of the liberal economies were very happy uh, with China doing uh, most of the manufacturing, uh, you know, and creating, uh, uh, basically becoming the factory. Uh, you know, it, it makes sense, you, you know, until and unless rules of liberal interdependence were observed, uh, this helped everyone, you know, absolutely everyone gained, China gained relatively more. But over a period of time, uh, these capacities also provided China uh, to coerce other states, especially when they are overly dependent upon China for some of the most critical elements, 
So rare earths for that matter is a critical resource needed uh, in advanced technologies from mobiles to radars, uh, so to say. And till 2012, uh, China controlled over 90% of the market. Uh, one of the reasons for that was that nobody wanted to get into this dirty business because uh, environmentally it's very, very hazardous uh, to kind of, you know, refine um, and extract rare earths uh, is not, you know, not, in a sense, uh, environment friendly. Uh, so China would do that. Uh, but if you remember the Senkaku Islands dispute between Japan and China in 2012, and it was Ch China's uh, China, the way China responded to it by cutting uh, off rare earth supplies to Japan was a wake-up call. Uh, so over a period, China's China's monopoly in the market has been reduced to 60%, uh, but still a monopoly, and it creates you know it provides China with resources uh, to kind of do economic coercion, which. It did with India and Australia last year as well, and continues to do with Australia right now. Uh, similar is the case with 5G technologies. Now, 5G technologies uh, particularly allows China, if uh, installed by these powers, uh, would allow China some kind of backdoor entry into critical national security infrastructure and again provide instruments of coercion. So, I think uh, one of the reasons for doing this is to reduce your own vulnerability of not only your dependence on China, but at some point in time, China might use these capabilities to kind of actively coerce you. So it's, it's just cutting down on your own vulnerabilities. Uh, that, is, that is fundamentally what is driving, uh, you know, these, uh, these kind of uh, initiatives on rare earths and technology. Uh, coming to climate change, I think climate change is something where everybody would need China. You can't really do uh, anything without China on climate change. Uh, and China has committed uh, to specific, uh, you know, measures uh, regarding its uh, its commitment to taking upon climate change. Uh, but the Quad countries and the U.S. would have to actively talk to China. There's no way out. And I think that also came out with the Anchorage talks between uh, U.S. and China. One of the rare things they agreed upon is basically on climate change. So I don't think uh, that even when they want to kind of work, you know, that's fine. They should, uh, but they would have to open China at some point. Um, and finally, um, with all these developments, what lies ahead for the Quad Alliance? Do you think it is finally here to stay irrespective of regime changes across these countries if and when they happen? Um, let me take the first question first, regime changes. We kind of attribute a lot of intention and motives to uh, domestic politics and changes in domestic politics. Uh, but as far as I understand, uh, domestic politics, if you take the example of India for that matter, you know, uh, might slow down uh, the evolution of the Quad, but cannot fundamentally change uh, the overall trajectory of uh, geopolitical churning uh, in the region. Uh, and primarily because it is much more dependent upon China's actions uh, than any of these Quad countries. Uh, you know, so China's rise, China's military assertiveness, China's economic coercion, would fundamentally drive these countries uh, to the quad or extract these countries out of the quad. Uh, so it is not as if, you know, if China's behavior tomorrow 
um, you know, becomes much more acceptable, then quad will continue to be in the same intensity. It might not be, but I don't see the reason for China to retract now. Uh, you know, so that's 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 the major problem. So insofar, uh, the larger geopolitical structural incentives remain intact. I don't see domestic politics making a huge change uh, in, 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 in the trajectory of the quad. It might slow it down, uh, but it cannot change the overall trajectory. This, these countries are coming together out of existential needs. You know, they are not coming out, coming towards each other for some lofty, uh, you know, principles for that matter. They keep on saying rule of law, but at the end of the day, it's about maintaining American hegemony in the region, which basically serves the interest of all these powers. Uh, you know, so, um, so everybody has similar interests. It's unlike BRICS, where you call multipolarity, but nobody knows the meaning of multipolarity. Uh, the only thing which all these countries share is fundamentally to avoid a Chinese hegemony in the region. And that's a very specific target. Uh, you know, and something which uh, they desperately require for their own, um, for their for their own survival and existence. So I think that's completely separate, in some sense, uh, you know, from from issues like domestic politics. Um, though I'm not completely kind of saying that it doesn't matter, um, but uh, the overall trajectory is set. The broader implications, if I may touch upon that, is that all these countries have finally, in some sense, have agreed to maintain the American hegemony. Whether you call it rule of law, whether you call it, you know, the, the liberal principles or whatever it is, uh, but uh, the American leadership or the leadership of liberal democracies must continue uh, to kind of, uh, you know, influence the larger geopolitics in the region. I think that's that's one thing which easily one can take care of, um, one can take off in a sense. You might disagree, one might disagree or agree with uh, India's level of democracy or something like that. Um, and therefore, I don't see, uh, you know, these lofty ideals of democracy and all that primarily motivating. It's primarily motivated by Chinese actions and Chinese assertiveness. Uh, and therefore, you can easily kind of, you know, um, paper over, uh, you know, some of the differences which comes out of uh, domestic politics. The second is uh, uh, that U.S. has realized that it has to work more closely with its allies and partners, uh, you know, but that doesn't mean, man, the only problem I have is that the allies and partners should not piggyback upon American credit, American commitments. Uh, this is this is a larger problem, you know, in a sense that if you look at the Trump administration, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, India put a lot of effort into their military capabilities. And I, I don't want to see that these countries uh, getting back into a state of limbo and saying that, oh, America will take care of us. Uh, so that's the downside of working closely with allies and partners. Uh, in terms of the larger China policy, and you mentioned about Anchorage, I think uh, Biden's China policy is Trump plus, uh, you know, so uh, it, they cannot retract uh, from the policy of confronting China unless it takes care of all the issues which Trump underlined. Um, they have to stand up to China, um, but also extract more out of China for domestic credit. Uh, so I think Biden is is, is going to be uh, is going to be much more uh, taking a much more offensive approach to China compared to Trump, uh, you know, uh, uh, because of both geopolitical necessities 
but also domestic politics. Um, you know, the U.S. domestic politics is completely shifted. Uh, they need a middle-class foreign policy, and for that, standing up to China uh, is the way to go forward. Thank you, Dr. Joshi, for this wonderful conversation. I think we all learned a lot from your uh, uh, from your answers today. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, really, very interesting set of questions. Made me think a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, do visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you.